this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Weirdest Oscars Ever edition. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. On today's show, we discuss another ho-hum night at the Oscars. Oh, dear. In addition to The Incident, a slew of winners, losers, surprises, as well as the usual trends to overthink, which uh, I'm eager to do. And then HBO has a new limited on the rise of the great 1980s Laker dynasty. It stars John C. Riley as Jerry Buss, the team's P.T. Barnum-like owner, and Quincy Isaiah as Irvin Johnson, a.k.a. the incomparable Magic, who together transform not just a franchise, but an entire sport. And finally... Gay, 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 there. I said it. But will Disney, now that there is a don't say gay law in Florida, will be joined by Slate's Mark Joseph Stern to discuss. And uh, joining me first is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Julia, you uh, you have a busy 24 hours, I bet. Yeah, uh, just another low-key night at the Oscars. You're at ground zero out there, land and plains. Uh, I cannot wait to talk to you. And uh, Dana Stevens, you as well as a veteran film watcher. You're the film critic of Slate. Hey, how's it going? Hello, hello. All right. Well, amidst declining cultural relevance, some people argued certainly empirically measured dwindling audiences. Uh, we got the Oscars, the 94th Academy Awards. They tried to make them brisker. Uh, they were shorter. They gave the supposedly less glamorous awards out earlier in a pre-recorded ceremony. Uh, they also tried to kind of Golden Globe it up a little bit, tart it up a little bit. Uh, there were audience favorite votes. Uh, we'll get to all of it, plus capital T, capital I, the incident. But uh, first, let's listen to a clip here. You're about to hear uh, co-hosts Amy Schumer and Wanda Sykes bantering about the tough decision to move some of the award show. And then there's a little visual joke where the lights flicker uh, as if the tech people are expressing their displeasure. As many of you know, a decision was made to present some behind-the-scene awards in the first mm-hmm. hour. Yeah, it was a controversial and difficult decision, but, you know, I think we've moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-oh, okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Look. Look, we're all union Yeah, yeah. we're really love by us. Come on. That's not Jeez. our decision. Dana, let me start with you. Were you... You know, it's always about winners, losers, surprises, uh, outrage or resentment, or someone got snubbed, uh someone got over rewarded where did you come out on coda winning the best picture and on and on we'll start there i don't think coda's win was a big surprise to you know statistic oscar watchers that were following the campaign closely and whether or not we end up liking the movie all three of us i think it was an important win as jane campions was there were a lot of moments at this oscars that would have been important and historic and moving to watch had the fire not been stolen by, you know, what I regard as just like a monstrously narcissistic act, if nothing else. I mean, we will talk about all the other things that that moment meant. But a big part of what it meant is that everybody who spoke after that, especially poor Questlove, who immediately afterwards accepted his trophy for best documentary for Mm -hmm. his very first film, Summer of Soul, which we talked about on this show and loved, that should have been an incredibly important moment for him. He was trying to pay tribute to his deceased father in his speech, and he was obviously really flustered and distracted as everyone watching and everyone in the audience was. And from that moment on, everything just proceeded to roll forward in this chaotic and somewhat sour-feeling way that I just really felt, even as somebody who's not a, a hu- who's not usually hugely moved by the Oscars, there's usually just one or two moments that I actually come away remembering and caring about. I just felt a lot of sympathy for all of those winners, whether mm-hmm. or not I had seen their movies or liked their movies or not. Right, all but one. And I didn't, Julia, want to magnify the disrespect that that act brought with it. So just quickly give me your sense of how the evening went minus the incident itself. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. Uh, it's so true. <laughs> all right, well, the two the two other main 
storylines of the night from my perspective were one, the race for best picture between Coda and Power of the Dog was from the Hollywood perspective, a race for best picture between Netflix and Apple, um, you know, for Netflix being the um, distributor of Power of the Dog and Apple Coda. Um, For many years, there was kind of horror and tossing and turning at the idea that any streamer might win best picture and best um, the classic storied studios at their own game. Um, it's been a bit of a parlor game in Hollywood to to wonder when Ted Sarandos is finally going to get his Best Picture Oscar. If you go to the Netflix offices in Los Angeles, they have very prominent trophy cases in the front lobby where you can see their hall, which does not yet include a Best Picture Oscar. Uh, and Apple sort of sidled into the streaming business just a couple years ago um, and then racked it up with a you know, Sundance movie they picked up. Um, so that's shocking. Tim Tim Cook besting Ted Sarandos um, probably would have been the main storyline of the night from a certain point of view here in Hollywood um, had it not been for the slap. Um, the other storyline, of course, is that the ratings for the Oscars tumbled to a, a swamp-like 10 million last year um, after having been in the 30 millions as recently as five years ago. Um, And the big question this year was, was that a pandemic anomaly or was that just the new normal? And if it is the new normal, then so much of how Hollywood's annual calendar is structured around these awards is up for grabs. Um, The Oscars brought in a new producer, Will Packer, and issued a set of rule changes that left eight of the more technical awards and some awards for short films um, being given out during an hour before the telecast. Uh, And then during the telecast, some of those speeches or all of those speeches were broadcast. Um, So that was the other big experiment of the night. Like, can you pull out eight of the less glitzy awards and deliver a tighter, more riveting, more highly watched by more people show? You know, on that score... (laughs) The show um, was longer than it was last year. Some of that had to do, I think, with having to let speeches run a little bit and just kind of chaos. And and the producers must have been thinking about something else in the final hour of the show after the slap. But, you know, it was heading to be a very long show even prior to that incident. So somehow they pulled out eight awards but it forced everyone in Hollywood to show up there an hour early because there was a lot of pressure on all the stars to actually be sitting there when all the sound editors, um, you, know, you know, and and composers won their awards. Uh, and then they ran almost all the speeches. So all you ended up losing was like the walking up to the podium time. Yeah. And then also <laughs> oh, one of my, uh, one of the editors on our team came up with the wonderful phrase, um, the deep fake Oscars, because then when you were watching the show, you kind of couldn't tell if you were watching a real time award or a pastime award. And it also sucked the suspense out of those awards because they went through the whole rigmarole of saying like, well, the six, the five nominees for sound are blah, 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 and blah. But if you were following on Twitter, you already knew who won that award. So it made the awards that according to them were boring, which I never found them that boring because it's always fun to see the behind the scenes folks actually boring because you already knew the winner <laughs> right and you don't see the suspense i mean right it's always exciting to see that grid of faces and then see the person who sees that they won right especially people who are working behind the scenes below the line you know somebody who's not used to being in the spotlight that's what you watch the oscars for is like somebody's face lighting up because they won so that de facto was gone from those pre-taped awards all right well i think we if, in order to do it any kind of justice we're going to have to pivot quickly to the slap here but very quickly i would just say that you know, I watched Coda last night, uh, having been out of the country for a couple of weeks, returning knowing that Coda had won, and uh, I was just over the moon for the Troy Kotzer win. His speech is an antidote to anything that you found wrong or sour or toxic about the evening. He's extraordinary in that movie. He deserved it. His speech conveys what a un, like, like just mind-bogglingly expressive human being he is. Why don't we? Why don't we listen to a little bit of uh, Katzer's remarkable speech? He's, of course, signing while an interpreter vocalizes what he's saying. My dad, he was the best signer in our family, but he was in a car accident, and he became paralyzed from the neck down. 
and he no longer was able to sign. Dad, I learned so much from you. I'll always love you. You are my hero. Thank you. For, thank you to my biggest fans, my wife, it's, it's, and it's my daughter, It's very powerful. Kira, um, it, the other thing I would say is that, you know, what's interesting to me, Julia, is that they're attempting to solve a huge problem that's a consequence of tectonic cultural shifts with changes in the production format, which is, you know, movies are no longer movies, an argument or a discussion that we've been having for virtually the last, you know, uninterruptedly for about the last six, eight, 10 years, because of the rise of streaming and uh, home viewing and uh, streaming services and tech companies becoming movie studios and uh, uh, not to mention the rise of kind of long form novelistic storytelling over 10 parts, on and on and on. There are all sorts of reasons why I, I, just live TV itself is not catnip to people. Even you know events like this just can't draw these mega audiences. That old boast that was always hollow to begin with that a billion people were watching, which had no empirical data behind it, at least had a kind of feeling or sort of a structure of truth behind it or it intimated that most people were somehow tuned in and on the planet or some large proportion of the people you wouldn't i don't think you could get away with saying that now and never will again no matter who they excise from the program in order to make it shorter um all right moving on dana you were clearly we all were but you were shocked by this and and ha have had some time to metabolize it a little bit where do you where do you come out about, you know? I mean, I don't know. This has been so brooded about on social media yesterday. And I deliberately, although I read about it all day, and honestly, the feeling, the kind of shock of the fact that there was just like physical violence intruding on the show and breaking, I don't know what you'd even call it, not the fourth wall, but just somehow the, the, the relationship between audience and spectacle in that way really shook me up. And I spent the whole next day kind of thinking and reading about it, but did not want to write about it. I'm really relieved that this was an Oscars that I was not assigned to write about specifically and uh, and didn't really want to opine about it on social media because it's really complex and it's a can of worms and all of that. But really, honestly, like to me, this is not something that can be necessarily um, analogized into a big uh, discussion about American culture. This was just the spectacle of a very privileged individual who's been, I think, really isolated from, you know, consequences and and sort of normal non-movie star behavior for decades, right, for basically his whole adult life, just reacting to what seems to be a personal feud or a personal grudge in front of all of these people who are there to celebrate their industry and their accomplishments that year. I mean, I don't know, my main response to it in the moment was just, that he he should have had to leave. I think he should have had to leave the ceremony. That's it. I don't think you know that that he should be thrown out of the academy. He should, he should have still gotten his Oscar because that was already voted for. But to me, it just seemed absolutely logical that someone who disrupts a ceremony with violence like that should be taken out. Send him his Oscar the next day. Then they then the academy can decide what they're going to do. Maybe they don't let him vote for a year. You know, maybe they enact some other sort of symbolic censure, or maybe they just simply accept his apology. I do think that he issued a very sincere apology last night or sincere sounding probably written completely by his publicity team but still he did apologize directly to Chris Rock which he did not in his speech but the combination of him being able to do that return to his seat smiling and then accept his Oscar 15 minutes later and getting a standing ovation for what I thought we'll talk about it what I thought was a very sinister speech that I really do think incorporated some very abusive sounding language Mm -hmm. The whole thing just really left a sour taste in my mouth, not only about Will Smith, but about the entire ceremony and the way that it was handled by the producers, who I agree were in a tough spot. I can only imagine that, you know, if you're a producer of the show at that moment, trying to figure out what to do, you are, it's hard to communicate, you know, things are happening on live TV. What if they try to eject him and he resists? That disrupts the show even more. It's just a big mess. But the whole thing just left the worst taste in my mouth. And then afterwards, when Jaden Smith, the the Smith's son, tweeted something about that's the way we do it, I just was talking about it with my daughter afterwards and saying, if there is one thing that I think most parents want to bring mm -hmm. up their children exactly. to not be, it's someone who would do something like Will Smith did at that ceremony. And I don't know, you you guys take it away. I don't, I, I that's, that's all I have to say. I think it would have been really hard to toss him out of the room. I mean, he it, he was widely expected to win Best Actor. It was essentially a foregone conclusion. And it took me a minute 
you know, after the after the slap to be like, oh my God, he's going to go up on stage in 20 minutes and give a speech. Like, Jesus, this is, this is crazy. But he became the fifth black man ever to win best actor. Like the, 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 the tragedy of it is that he stepped on his own achievement and, and I, I don't know, I don't know that they could have ejected him without the whole thing descending into, into chaos, but the way in which they failed to do anything, cut to commercial, have a host chime in and diffuse the tension in the room. Um, I don't know. It, it, the whole night leaves the impression, if, if the concern about the Oscars is that it leaves the impression that Hollywood is totally out to lunch, the way in which the show failed to reckon with what had happened mm-hmm. completely continued that. I mean, one thing that struck me about it is that it was almost, it, it was almost like Smith and others there were living in the the kind of heightened and diluted alternate reality in which films take place. Like, mm-hmm. where do things like this happen? Not happen yeah. in real life, in movies, you know? Right. And his like, speech pointed to that when he said, this is just like King Richard, right? I mean, yeah. he compared his protectiveness, as he saw it, of his wife in that moment of slapping Chris Rock to the protectiveness of, of Williams over his daughters, which, you know, again, to me, it just feeds into this kind of faux courtly language of gallantry yes. that seems that seems right. very wrong. Um, and no matter how much he objected to what was, I agree, an offensive joke on Chris Rock's part, there were many things he could have done. And we talked about this with my daughter afterwards, things that he could have done that would have expressed his, his anger. He could have left the ceremony, right? right. He could have swept right. out with his wife and not been there to accept his award. That would have sent a very strong message or he could have, I mean, it would have been very disruptive, but he could have did what he did do and, you know, yell from the stands uh, Mm -hmm. things in defense of his wife. Again, very disruptive, not great behavior at the Oscars, but not, you know, an an act of violence on live television. You know, this is a very, as you say, courtly, like medieval notion of honor to defend your wife. I, I just think people should pause and ask how bad that notion has been for women since the beginning of time, right? This macho notion that uh, it implies that a woman is a defenseless, can't defend herself. In certain maybe physical circumstances, that's true for both men and women, at which point it can be brave to step in. This was not nearly one of them. And it, it sort of continued into the speech, which I agree with Sinister, that he was on set to protect these young actresses and protect and protect and protect. It's this in enormously self-congratulating worldview in which it's Will Smith's job to protect weak women in a movie about the Williams sisters. I mean, I, I, I just, this is, this is awful. I, I'm just floored that some people have defended it. What about the argument that I've seen some make that, that Chris Rock was using hate speech himself in making a joke about physical disability? I mean, I don't think that that should stretch to, therefore, he deserved to be slapped on live television. But, you know, the idea that he crossed a boundary and that speech can also be a form of violence. But the just, just over the thin line from that is violence can be a form of speech. It seems to me to imply that. And I think that that is a repulsive direction for the culture to go in. One thing that really did strike me that someone tweeted about, I'm just going to read this because I think this captures it perfectly. This person says, last year was the most COVID impacted Oscars, but this one really captured the energy of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. I think. I don't think that this could have happened, this level of chaos and this sense of disruption before the pandemic interrupted Mm -hmm. all our lives. I mean, there was, I I just, I had a real follow the Roman Empire sense at the end of that show and felt like even as a movie person Mm -hmm. who for all the absurdity of the Oscars kind of looks forward to it each year just to see movies celebrated, if, if nothing else. I, I felt inclined to never watch again. I mean, between the cynical programming decisions that had already been made and then what happened after this this you know act interrupted the proceedings, it just it left a horrible feeling. All right. I think we'll get a lot of email on this. We welcome it. And um, the discussion's going to continue. It has to. All right, guys, let's move on. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. 
follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, that's your remit. What you got? Stephen, this week, our only item of business is to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to be talking about the Oscars from a different angle, one of me and Julia's favorites, one of Steve's least favorites, Oscars fashion. I think there's a lot to say about it this year because it feels like fashion is finally back from the pandemic slump it was in where nobody quite dared to be glamorous. Julia is going to dig into that with me, and we're going to force Steve to opine on the fashion as well. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that bonus segment at the end of this program. If you're not, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described. You'll hear that on lots of other Slate shows as well. And of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Also, of course, you will be supporting us, our podcast, our writing, the work of all of our brilliant colleagues at Slate. These memberships are really important to keep the magazine going. So please, if you can, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? Okay, well, winning time, the rise of the Laker dynasty takes us back to 1979, when improbably pro basketball was a rinky-dink sport. It's really true. I remember this. It was financially precarious largely ignored by the viewing public and perceived by network suits as too quote-unquote urban. I'll let you uh, puzzle out what they meant by that. Cue Jerry Buss, a physician and an entrepreneur and a self-styled charmer who hustles up the money out of thin air to buy the Lakers. The key to his fortunes going forward is Magic Johnson, who is about to come to the team as the overall number one draft pick. And he, uh, this was my, for what it's worth, heyday of watching um, uh, the NBA. Uh, Magic was one of the true unicorns the sports has ever actually produced. He was a a point guard in a power forward's body. He was six foot nine, which is unusually a tall for someone playing that position. And he was, he was truly, he was a magician on the court. To anybody listening to this, I highly recommend just Googling Magic Johnson career highlights or putting it in YouTube. It is an astonishing, to this day, an astonishing thing to watch. And lo and behold, what happened over the next decade, Bus and Magic would totally transform the Lakers into one of the greatest sports dynasties of all time while transforming the NBA into an entertainment juggernaut. The ensemble cast here features uh, John C. Riley as Bus, Quincy Isaiah as Magic, uh, plus you got a, I mean, just a bunch of people. It's Adrian Brody, Gabby Hoffman, Tracy Letts. It's directed, some might say, very directed by Adam McKay, he of the big short and don't look up. Let's listen to a clip. In the following scene, we're going to hear Magic and Bus discussing the future of the franchise. Magic has yet to come. He's wondering what's in store for him. Um, and Bus knows that he's got lightning in a bottle sitting right in front of him. Hey, what kind of doctor are you anyway? Physical chemistry. Hmm. Believe it or not, I used to help design missiles for the government. But one day I realized I'd rather build things than blow them up. So that was the end of that. Heavy, man. Irvin, that's what I want to do with the Lakers. I want to build something special. Mm. But I need a partner. That mean we got a deal? Well, I take you out for a nice burger. You just want to hit me again with that. 600 is a lot, let me tell you. Isn't that what the Celtics just paid Larry Bird? <laughs> yeah, I see you smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't see the difference between me and him, you know? Except I kind of did whoop his ass for the national championship. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Come on. Okay, for the following segment, Julia's going to drop out and we'll be joined by Jack Hamilton. Jack is Slate's pop critic. He's a professor at the University of Virginia and the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination, a book that just stays relevant and gets more and more relevant about the cultural theft that was this major music uh, genre. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So in the clip, we hear, you know, Magic and uh, Bus talking about the Great White Hope, the big rival 
to be of uh, magic in the prose. Larry Bird and uh, Magic wants nothing more than to have as much money or nearly as much money as his white counterpart. Uh, this is an interesting, it's certainly an interesting subject, but having read you now on it, I take it you didn't warm uh, all that much to it. No, yeah, I didn't like winning time. I went in with very high expectations, or maybe not high expectations, but I went in, you know, really interested because I'm a huge basketball fan. Um, I've liked some of Adam McKay's previous work a lot. Um, I haven't liked his recent work all that much, but um, yeah, it was a it was a show that struck me as sort of like flawed in its conception and then also its execution. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it's like you know a bad idea for a show that's uh, then uh, badly executed. I just feel like the dialogue is often you know, just incredibly stilted. You know, it's like characters explaining their biographies to one another, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. which is just sort of a hallmark of kind of, you know, bad uh, historical uh, fiction or, you know, whatever um, historical recreation. Yeah, I mean, it, Adam McKay had the subject that people wanted desperately to have explained to them. In fact, there's a whole sort of explainer industry that arose out of the 08 financial crisis. And uh, The Big Short, you know, took the Lewis book and, at least to me, introduced this semi-new style of sort of glib fun, but glib didacticism, and uh, of, of kind of just breaking the fourth wall and suddenly giving you naked exposition or backstory or historical context for what was happening in front of you. I, it worked there. It doesn't seem to work here. But you and I agree, right? The premises of the show are quite right, that this was this was a historic transformation in the history of NBA sports. You could argue also for the place of, uh, of uh, African-American players, black players in the American imagination, a sport that was to be honest, was considered by white racist network network executives to be too black uh, to carry with a large audience, and it became the yuppie sport of the '80s, and no small part because of the you know tremendous rivalry between Bird and Magic. Um, uh, so it, it kind of had us at hello, and then lost us. Uh, did it ever? Did it ever click for you? Did it ever start to engage you more deeply? I think some of the performances are quite good. Uh, there's been, you know, um, it's it, it's an interesting show because it's been nitpicked uh, for a variety of reasons, depending on the audience. You know, hardcore NBA people have pointed out a lot of the historical inaccuracies, which didn't really bother me as much. Um, but so, for instance, like Jason Clark plays Jerry West, and, and his depiction of West has been uh, roundly criticized by people who know West as being unrealistic. I found it to be one of the most interesting parts of the show because he actually turns Jerry West into an interesting character. I mean, not to say Jerry West isn't actually interesting in real life. He certainly is. But it's like a lot of the other characters in the show are really, really one dimensional. Um, similarly, I thought actually Quincy Isaiah, who's a who's a newcomer, does a really good job playing Magic Johnson, which has to be one of the most difficult parts Tough gig. to, <laughs> to Tough you know, gig. ask yep. someone to play. Uh, you know, Magic Johnson, I think, is just one of the most charismatic, you know, magnetic team sports athletes of the 20th century. I mean, he's just a sort of singular figure um, and, you know, brilliant basketball player, but also just a sort of electrifying presence in, in popular culture more broadly. Um, so it's really impressive that, that Isaiah you know, is able to turn him into something more than just an impersonation. Um, But in terms of, yeah, as a basketball fan, one of the things I found really lacking in this show was its sort of attention or interest in actual basketball. Like, it's, it's baffling to me that this show seems to think that what drew people to the Showtime Lakers was its owner, you know, or was mm-hmm. it's like what was going, mm-hmm. you know, was like the Laker girls or like all of the glitz. Like that certainly was, you know, those were innovative things. But what was drawing people to the team was this groundbreaking revolutionary style of play, you know, anchored by these like unbelievably talented uh, players that like that's the thing that the show is really unable to capture and at times seems kind of un- uninterested in capturing, mm-hmm. which to me was just really bizarre. Yeah, I really agree with that. Uh, and though, for those of our listeners who don't know, Jerry West was a was a absolutely brilliant player in his heyday. I mean, a, you know, leading scorer uh, who couldn't win. I mean, he was on the Lakers and he couldn't put them over the top until right at the end of his career. Uh, uh, they finally did it. And the interesting thing about the portrayal, Dana, I'm curious to know whether you found it interesting, is that 
West has a very specific personality type of someone who is badly abused uh, uh, as a kid, which is that they're always escaping, always escaping, and and always trying to prove themselves. And when they finally get the thing that they want, they fall apart. And it vividly, the show vividly portrays a man who's worst moment is actually winning and i thought that that was that was a little interesting i mean that that's a very particular kind of neurosis or human damage and i thought this actually did a pretty good job of depicting that i'm curious what you thought of this show dana I mean, just just quickly about the Jerry West character, I think Jason Clark is great in that role. And I completely agree that it's a fascinating piece of psychology for somebody who's not a big sports watcher and is outside of sports. The idea that you would have this, you know, Hamlet-like relationship to your own sports career as a coach or as a player is really interesting. And I sort of wish that he had been the main character, Jason Clark's Jerry West, or or a a more main character than the John C. Riley character, the team's owner that the show is based around, who... In a way, I mean, he's one of the the you know players in this story who's interesting, but I don't quite see why the story is built around that character in particular. And I think that's a flaw of the show is that we spend so much time on him and his his psychology when in fact he's less complex and less interesting than either Magic Johnson or Jerry West. Mm. But the bigger problem with the show for me, and Jack, you completely nailed this in your review for Slate, was that it was so distracting, all the formal bells and whistles that McKay was constantly using. I know this is his new style since Vice, that Dick Cheney biopic he made. He has been really into, you know, no, actually since the big short, Steve, you're right, before Vice, but it's been really annoying since Vice that he has to constantly be changing the framing and, you know, having mm-hmm. this kind of disjunctive editing and, you know, the, the fourth wall breaking is only a part of it. And to me, the least distracting part, the worst to me in particular, and I'm going to read some of your review aloud, Jack, because you <laughs> just said it so perfectly, it was the changing of film stocks was so oh irritating. God, I know. I'm going to yeah. read just a couple sentences from Jack's excellent review of this show. He says, compounding the tonal and storytelling inconsistencies of winning time is how the show actually looks. In order to achieve period veracity, the filmmakers alternately employ the visual aesthetics of grainy 8mm and 16mm film stock and old-fashioned Betacam tapes. The novelty of this is initially interesting. I completely agree with that, Jack, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. I love looking at old film stocks. But then it quickly goes dis- grows distracting as there's no apparent logic to when and why each style is applied. And that was just what got me in this show. There's moments where two characters are sitting in a bar having a conversation. They look across the room and what they see across the room is shown in a different format, <laughs> film yeah. format, than the guys at the table talking. So what is Adam McKay trying to say with this? Like that they yeah. see in beta cam or something? It's just, <laughs> it was so distracting to me that it took me out of the story every time. And it just seemed like showing off to no particular effect. I want to jump in here quickly and defend one thing about it, which is that with all due respect to the fact that they absolutely 100% foregrounded a white character at the expense of the black players who made that team magical, I really think John C. Riley is terrific as a bus. I love him as an actor. I love movies that Riley is called upon to more or less carry because he's often a supporting role. And I, I agree, found, absolutely love him. And I couldn't I, believe that I didn't yeah. like him as the main character, but it's not well, his fault. I, it's the script. It's, well, yeah. but let me let me def, let me defend that just very briefly and then Jack will let you button us. But but I was just weirdly grateful for the story of a disruptor and a businessman whose claim to being self-made was reasonably or appears reasonably true, who was neither a financier nor a dot-com, you know, futurist uh and that throwback aspect i kind of liked and i i hate the carney type i hate the pt barnum type you know it's ruined american america for me many on many occasions i kind of like jerry like something about riley has made me like and be curious about bus in part because he was instrumental to completely revivifying a sport that I love and um, and really ch- changing sports in a sense. So, I mean, he understood that sports could, that you could produce a legitimately great ter- a team, a beautifully constructed, you know, inter- you know, perfectly integrated team that was also an entertainment product in a way that didn't um, compromise the integrity of the sport. I, I just kind of like the ride. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge John C. Riley fan, like huge. I mean, you guys may know that like Step Brothers is one of my favorite movies <laughs> of all time. <laughs> I'm a big, big evangelist for uh, for John C. Riley, but yeah, I mean, I would, I agree with Dana that I think that like 
you know, uh, he, I think he does his best with a part that is like really, really, really incompletely written, um, and incoherently written. Like I, I've seen more of the show than, than I think either of you just cause I got screeners, but it is like the show never is able to really settle on a consistent tone for his character in terms of like yeah. whether he is the dramatic center point of the show or whether he is at other times seemingly functioning as this weird comic relief type character. Like there's so much physical comedy around like his hair and stuff like that. That's just sort of strange um, and feels like something that's out of one of Adam McKay's earlier movies. Um, I don't want to lay too, too much of this at the feet of McKay. He did direct the first episode, but he wasn't, to my knowledge, involved in the in the writing or the Fair, creation yeah. of the show. Uh, but it does definitely bear a lot of his, um, you know, fingerprints of the of his more recent work. But yeah, I mean, I think that's like the, the issue with with the Riley performance is a general tonal one that speaks to, I think, a fundamental problem of the show, which is that like, and I touch on this in my review, that it's like, it feels like no one at any point in this process, it's like they got this IP from the Jeff Perlman book that it's based on. And they were like, cool, you know, probably like, you know, The Last Dance was a big hit. Uh, the Michael Jordan documentary that aired at mm-hmm. the beginning of the right. pandemic. You know, let's do this sort of nostalgia thing. We got this starry cast. Uh, but like no one really sat down and was like, what exactly are we trying to do? You know, like yeah. what is the point of this show? Uh, and, and I feel like the, the Riley character really embodies that problem where it's like, what do you want this character to do? All right. Well, Jack Hamilton, thank you so much for coming back on the show to talk about this great piece. It's HBO's Lakers show has an Adam McKay problem. It's up on Slate now. Uh, Jack, come back soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, the state of Florida has passed the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, a completely woeful, hateful, really, piece of anti-LGBTQ legislation, it places a unique burden on one of the biggest employers and most high-profile corporations operating in the state, Disney. Here to discuss that is Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer for Slate. And once again, Julia will be dropping out for this segment. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Happy to be here. Yeah, excellent. I'm super eager to talk about this with you. You've written about it and tweeted about it in interesting ways. Uh, I gave the very broadest brush summary. Can you introduce us on a more granular level to what's going on here? So this bill, which has been dubbed Don't Say Gay, is also known as HB 1557. And it is a Republican-sponsored measure that severely restricts um, the amount of discussion and instruction about LGBTQ issues in public schools. Um, So I'm just going to read a little bit of the text of the bill. I promise it won't be too boring, but I think it's important to kind of drill down on what this bill does and does not do. So there are two main features of it. Um, The first is an absolute ban on any classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades kindergarten through three, right? So total ban for K through three. And then 
the bill says for grades four through 12, there is a partial ban on instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity uh, that is not, quote, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. What state standards are those? They do not actually exist. So TBD, maybe they'll be drawn up now, but right now there are no such standards. Um, and the most important thing to understand about this, this law is that it's not enforced in a traditional way. It is modeled after the Texas abortion ban, um, which, as you may know, is enforced by private citizens um, through sort of like vigilante lawsuits. And it's a similar model here. So if a parent believes that classroom instruction has occurred um, in a public school, they can actually go to court and sue that school district uh, and say, you violated this law and in doing so violated my rights as a parent and can collect thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in damages as well as attorney's fees if they prevail. Um, if the school district prevails, they do not get attorney's fees. So it's kind of like a one-way ratchet. Um, and so the bill not only imposes these very vague rules about what teachers can and cannot say, but it's designed to chill a maximum amount of speech because even if a teacher is ultimately exonerated, just by being sued, they're going to face a months-long investigation. They're going to have their reputation dragged through the mud. Um, they're going to po quite possibly be terminated or suspended. And so the safe bet for any rational teacher now that this, this bill has been signed is to simply say nothing at all about LGBTQ issues or people or families because doing so could subject them to a ruinous lawsuit. Uh, it's just Orwellian. Uh, now talk a little bit about, um, you know, it, Disney is a large presence in Florida. It's a large presence, obviously, everywhere in the world. It, it has an opportunity to respond to this and by and large it punts. Disney is the single most powerful entity in the state of Florida. It is my home state. I was just there over the weekend. Beautiful state run by horrible people. And Disney for a long time has earned a lot of deference from the legislature and the governor. And traditionally, um, Republicans and Democrats alike have really kind of conferred with Disney on a lot of their big moves to make sure that they have Disney on board. Um, Disney is a huge donor to legislators of both parties. Uh, it has given many thousands of dollars to the sponsors and supporters of this Don't Say Gay bill. And that created a lot of uh, displeasure within the company, especially in Florida, because for a while, Disney was totally silent about this, which is pretty unusual for a measure that implicates Disney's values. Um, Disney likes to present itself as very gay-friendly, um, very LGBTQ-friendly. It, it says it's a great sponsor and supporter of gay rights and trans rights. Um, I don't know about you, but I have several friends who are Disney gays. They go there three times a year and wear their Mickey Mouse hats and post them on Instagram and Grindr. Like, the gays love Disney, and Disney likes to say that it loves the gays. But for a while, when this bill was being, uh, you know, passed through committee, passed through a chamber of the of the legislature, Disney kept his mouth shut. So there was a kind of a rebellion behind the scenes. Um, staff at Disney started saying, Disney has to speak out about this. And Bob Chapek, the current uh, CEO of Disney, he said, actually, no, we don't need to say anything about this because, you know, that's really veering outside our lane. We just need to promote LGBTQ equality through our wonderful content, mm. which can make the world a better place for LGBTQ people by promoting our values and LGBTQ acceptance. To which a number of employees responded, actually, we've been trying to put openly gay characters in Disney and Pixar movies for many, many years, and you have continually and consistently cut them out. And also, making movies that gays like does not amount to actively opposing and lobbying against this bill. 
Yeah, it was only yesterday, I believe, right? right? I mean, it was only after the, the bill has now been signed into law that, that Disney came out with a, a strong pushback statement against it. And I think that was essentially damage control for these things you're talking about. Like, I assume you're referring also to the, the open letter from Pixar employees talking about, you know, specific, giving specific examples of, you know, characters that had been muted, let's say, or, you know, reduced in the, the degree to which they could they could represent any kind of gay content in Pixar movies. Right. So after this blowback from the initial response by Chapek, um, he does step up before the bill passes and, and produces a much better statement that still is not nearly as strong as many, many Disney employees would like to see, where he says, look, just to be clear, we do oppose this bill. We do not support it. Um, and I even talked to Ron DeSantis about why we oppose it, um, which does not really amount to full-on lobbying. Like, so l- let's say that Florida wanted to raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour, right? I guarantee you that Disney would be lobbying the legislature actively to prevent that from happening because that actually affects Disney's bottom line. That's not what we saw here. We saw these statements that kind of got a little bit stronger with each one, but weren't quite there until, as you said, Dana, after the bill passes and finally Chapek says, okay, we hate this bill, it's awful, it's odious to our values, and we will do everything we can to ensure that it is overturned or repealed. However, that does not appear to include stopping donations to the sponsors and supporters of the bill. Disney has not indicated that it will dry up the funds that it has been sending over to these Republican legislators for many years. Mark, one of the conflicts that's going on here and must be especially acute for a company like Disney is on the one hand, corporate America wants to sell as many things to as many people as possible, aka they want to offend as few people as possible. So they, in one sense, their public face has to be one of almost sort of radical inclusion and even sort of a progressive uh, veneer. Um at the same time, they're shareholder-pleasing entities that are forced constantly to lobby the government for advantages both large and small, uh, and therefore they distribute their money, uh, their cash, to politicians who demagogue against inclusion, demagogue against LGBTQ uh, very often. Um, how is Disney, if you had to talk a little bit about about this balance in general and how Disney might work it out, uh, uh, I'd love to. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really sticky issue that gets into this deeper quagmire of corporations creating beloved entertainment, but doing evil things with the dollars that it rakes in from consumption of that entertainment. And I'm loath to defend Disney here, but it is hardly the only company that is playing this game. I mean, one really prominent example is that a bunch of corporations said they were going to stop donating to the members of Congress who voted against certifying the 2020 election, right? The so-called Insurrection Caucus. And they did it for a few months, and then they said, okay, well, everybody's forgotten about this, so we're just going to start donating again. (laughs) Um, I think there's an even more more extreme dissonance with a company like Disney because their donations clash so directly with their stated values. But it's not just Disney, right? Um, Some other organizations that uh, say they support LGBTQ rights but fund anti-LGBTQ politicians, United Health Group, Comcast, Walgreens, AT&T, I live in D.C., a very LGBTQ-friendly jurisdiction. These companies put out commercials with, like, drag queens and trans people and same-sex couples. And they're like, we strongly support you, LGBTQ consumers. And then they turn around and give a ton of money to Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis and people who are lobbying against our interests. And I don't think that there's like an easy answer to this problem, but I am glad that the Disney brouhaha has drawn more attention to it because for so long, like the human rights campaign has used this guide to LGBTQ friendly corporations, right? You can see it online. They're like, here's where you should shop if if you want to support LGBTQ people. And they exclusively for many years went by what their policies were, whether they said they didn't discriminate against gay 
gay people and trans people, you know, if they gave equal family leave to same-sex couples, whatever, and did not factor in how much money these people were giving to anti-gay demagogues and bigots. That is starting to change. And I am very curious to see if the don't say gay thing is going to set off a bigger kind of re-examination on the left about just how far a corporation can go funding hate campaigns and hate groups and hateful politicians uh, while pretending to strongly support peace, love and harmony and equality and all that. Yeah, it seems like the the human rights campaign in particular has kind of gotten wise to this rainbow washing phenomenon you're talking yes. about. Because one of the things that Chapek brags about in one of these, you know, various um, press releases, basically letters, open letters that he's written about this to the company, is that for 16 years running, I think he says the human rights campaign has given Disney, you know, their approval rating, whatever it is, given them, you know, some sort of star approval rating for being right. a, a human rights friendly company, and yet. One of the other things that's happened in this last few weeks of, of chaos around what Disney is going to do about Don't Say Gay is that the human rights campaign turned down a really substantial donation from Disney saying, you know, not until you not until you get right with your policies do we want to accept your money. I cannot overstate how big a deal that is. I mean, that was a huge turning point um, in this battle because for so long, as you indicated, HRC has kind of hoovered up money from these corporations, almost as though the companies are tithing. They're like, okay, we're giving money to Josh Hawley, but we're also tithing to HRC. And that proves that, you know, we're, we're basically good on LGBTQ stuff. And now for the first time, I mean, this is really unprecedented, HRC is turning down a huge donation and saying, we don't want to be a part of it. We don't want to be a part of your rainbow washing. Yes, we could use this money for good, but it's more important that we take a moral and political stand here against this kind of uh, Janus-faced activism uh, on behalf of, and then also against LGBTQ rights. And again, I think that's really powerful. And I think it's going to put other LGBTQ groups and broader like progressive nonprofits in a bit of a pickle because they are also taking money um, from corporations that are also super hypocritical about this. And, you know, HRC is suddenly relevant again for the first time in a long time. I don't think they're going to let this one go. And I think the pressure is only going to increase on these other companies that are quietly funding hate campaigns while claiming to love and adore their LGBTQ consumers. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, Terrific uh, segment. And let's have you back soon, please. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure and happy to come back anytime. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Now is the moment we, uh, we endorse in this show. Uh, happily, we're reunited with Julia. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Steve, I'm going to endorse, this is a very Dana endorsement this week. It's the kind of music that I actually listen to um, that you always, always mock. But I actually think that you and all our <laughs> listeners would really love this. So as, as I've talked about before on the show, I love listening to the radio. A really great DJ, especially in a form of music that you don't know that much about, is just such a wonderful way to guide you through the music. And in the era of music streaming apps and people listening to channels on Spotify and Pandora, you just don't often get to hear that voice of a good DJ who's really curating the experience for you. One such DJ is Bill McLaughlin, who has this long-standing show on, it's a syndicated show on classical radio here in New York. It's on WQXR, but I don't think it originates there. And it's called Exploring Music. And Bill McLaughlin's big thing is that he sits at a piano while he DJs his show. So sometimes if he's talking about a particular theme, he'll just play it out on the keys for you as he goes. And it's like it's like going to a great college music class. And it, he knows so much about world music and the history of music. So this particular series of shows, it was a week-long series. I believe it's five nights of shows. So it's 
a total of 300 plus minutes of music is called Latin Carnival, which when you hear the title sounds like it would all be kind of samba party music, which would be great in itself. But it isn't that it's more like a sort of a, a history of Latin Carnival music going all the way back to, you know, the Middle Ages up to the present day. So he has, you know, nights that he talks about. He has a night that he talks about tango and uh, Astro Piazzolla, the great tango composer. He talks about the Brazilian composer Vila Lobos, who wrote some kind of carnival classical pieces. But he also goes way back in history and talks about people like this composer I'd never heard of, a guy named Padilla, who was a Spanish composer living in Mexico during the Baroque period, who is incredible. And all the while, Bill McLaughlin is sitting at his piano, pointing out little themes, playing them for you. And by the end of it, you just feel like I've taken a great many hour course on the history of Latin carnival music. Another thing to know about this is that like most radio shows that contain music, there are rights issues about putting it online. So it can't just become a podcast that you can listen to in perpetuity. So it only lives online for a short time. This aired, I think, last week, and you can listen to it online for another week and a half or so. So we'll put a link on our show page. And before it expires, go listen to Latin Carnival, a week's worth of music from Bill McLaughlin. That is an amazing endorsement. That is really cool. I, I'd love to discover that. I'm so sad about the rights issues, but I'm going to seek it out. Julia, what do you have? Well, if our listeners will indulge us, I want to point them to two pieces that we ran at the LA Times in the wake of the slop, uh, both of which I think are really well worth reading as you ponder what happened. Um one is by Greg Braxton, a wonderful veteran reporter on our television team who who writes um, really masterfully about culture and representation and has been covering Hollywood's uh, advances and missteps on that front for decades now. Um, he wrote a commentary called With the Slop, Smith Tarnished a Night of Pride for Black Hollywood and His Legacy that is really worth going and seeking out. And then Mary McNamara, one of our columnists, uh, just pointed out that, in fact, this Oscars was an extraordinary night of achievement for women in film, uh, in addition to Jane Campion becoming the third woman to win Best Director. Um, Coda became, I think, only the third or fourth female-directed film ever to win Best Picture. So her column is called Will Smith's Slop Overshadows a Historic Night for Women at the 2022 Oscars, and she digs into the gendered dynamics of the incident and uh, all of the other winners who were overshadowed by it in a really smart way. I read both of those pieces, Julia, on my day-long deep dive into the Oscars yesterday, and they're wonderful. The Greg Braxton in particular was just one of the most astute analyses of something that was being very hastily and sometimes poorly analyzed yesterday. Uh, I'm very eager to read both of those. Um, so uh, back to music for a second. I There are a few things I love more than uh, Robert Smith and The Cure. They just endure in my listening habits. Just such a funny, weird band. Dana, are you with me on this? Oh, my God. The Cure, yes. Yeah. I hardly ever listen to them now because they're so, so evocative of my high school days. But absolutely yeah. wonderful band. They bring you they bring you back there without like making you feel like a rube for going back there and in a great way. I mean, that music's just eternal for me and few things I love more than their song, just like heaven. But I also love, I love three different covers of it. One, you can only find on YouTube of the band churches, which yes, I know is pronounced churches, uh, doing it with Robert Smith and the whole thing just kicks. It's just so good. And he's terrific. He's in great voice. I think they're a great rock and roll band. Uh, she's a wonderful singer. They do a great cover of it. Um, and then, of course, there's the eternal um, quasi-punk, neo-punk cover it by, uh, by Dinosaur Jr. that uh, just absolutely slays as well. But um, I found an, a new one that I adore, and it just goes in a totally different direction. It kind of dims the lights on it, gets gets you in a mood. It's by a singer-songwriter my kids introduced me to, Christian Lee Hudson, H-U-T-S-O-N, who's like 
a man after my own heart. He's sort of got that depresso adjunct faculty bearing. Uh, and he writes thoughtful, introspective, introspective songs, but don't hold that against him. I think he's terrific. And um, Lose This Number is, is just a great song by him. Check it out. But also his cover of Just Like Heaven is so flawless. He makes it his own. He honors the original. He does all the things you're supposed to do. Please, just put add it to your playlist. It's really worth it. Check it out. Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick. The one that makes me scream, she said. The one that makes me laugh, she said. Throw her arms around my neck. Show oh, Steve, please send those to the show page because I think we should swap music recs this week. That sounds amazing to me. My music rec sounded amazing to you. So let's swear to each other that we will listen to each other's endorsements this week. Pinky swear. I have, I have so much good stuff to, to send you. Julia, thank you so much. Great show. Thank you. Uh, Dana, as always, a real delight. Nice to have you back. Thank you. You will find links to some of the things we talked about on our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Please, we do actually love it. I've been away for two weeks. I'm going to try to start responding. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Pertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will we'll see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.